0: This is BTS with CTV, behind the scenes, behind the stories we bring you from the CTV Vancouver newsroom. My name is Penny Daff, and I'll be your guide behind the curtain, which has us talking about some of our field crew's most unforgettable stories on the job, specifically the ones that got the adrenaline pumping.
1: Well, we just had the helicopter come back to the launch pad here at Mount Seymour. Major news
0: events unfolding as we report live on the air, some of them fatal and deeply disturbing.
2: Pursuing those accused of heinous crimes. The charges include sexual interference, sexual exploitation, living on the avails of a juvenile and trafficking a minor.
0: But working in the field can also get the blood pumping by being in the air instead of just on it. Not to mention running the risk of getting the air knocked out of you in the dangerous bedlam of a riot. We're going to start with reporter Nafisa Kareem. I know you've got a lot of adrenaline pumping stories, but what would
3: be your number one? I think the most adrenaline I've ever felt was we were at a standoff outside the Starlight Casino. This was November 2012, so I was actually filling in on the morning show, so I was sort of new to that role anyways. This was a five-hour standoff. The report was it was an armed man, a domestic dispute of some kind. The emergency response team was outside the casino and they were trying to negotiate with him. And we'd been there for hours. It started at six in the morning. And all of a sudden, we heard a series of bangs and then silence, and then sirens. And immediately we knew that someone had died. We didn't know whom, and then shortly afterwards we'd heard that the um, IIO had been called in to investigate. And so later we obviously realized that um, this armed man had been shot and killed, and we had heard that. I'd never heard the sound of gunfire like that before. We didn't see it, but we heard it. And I don't i don't think anything could erase that from my memory. And we had to do a live report after that. And I remember just shaking and thinking, we just heard what it sounds like when someone is shot and killed and we we didn't know who it was at the time and it turned out it was a delta police officer who pulled the trigger and some of the sounds we were hearing were also flashbangs uh as well as rubber bullets but we heard the officer's shots as well and that's a hard sound to get out of your mind once you hear it and i think that's that's definitely the most adrenaline i've ever felt because i don't think anything prepares you for hearing that on the job and then having to report it
0: because well, you were so close, and then to have to articulate what you just
3: heard as the adrenaline's pumping, that's not an easy thing. It isn't. And I think people get the sense of that when you're on the air is that they can see your emotion. They can see that you're either shaken or your, your voice is shaky. And I, I, some people say, oh, doesn't that worry you? You come off sounding rattled. And to that I say that's the nature of the job and that's what makes it real. And people watching at home on TV can see that this is actually real. It's not some kind of movie shoot. These are real people in real situations that, that we're seeing and hearing.
0: I think that is important because it also takes people there so that they know what it was like being there. If we're just too cold and detached, first of all, nobody you know, wouldn't have some sort of response to that. And I think it also takes the viewer
3: there as well. And that's part of our job is we're, we're witnesses too. We're bringing people to the news. We're bringing the news to the people. And that means if there's emotion and we're showing it, to me, that's part of the job. Thank you,
0: Nafisa. I want to bring in reporter Sheila Scott now. I've pulled her away from the assignment desk where
1: she's been working today. What's your story, Sheila? I was on the morning show in 2016 and, um, you know, it's sometimes it's the weirdest stories that stick out for you uh, the most. And in this case, uh, we'd spent the morning on Mount Seymour where this snowboarder had been um, stuck basically in an ice lake waiting for rescue all night. His family was there. They were worried sick. They weren't sure how badly injured he was. So after all this waiting, helicopters flying around, finally they um, long-lined him out of this ice lake and And I was standing there basically seeing the chopper come towards us in the parking lot and start to lower him down. And just the emotion from his family, who'd been so sick with concern, seeing the emotion on their face as they saw him sort of coming closer to safety with all these people that had put so much work in to um, bring him to safety. It was, it filled me with adrenaline, but it was also so full of emotion to see that really primal happiness from his family that their loved one was okay and also trying to take everything all in and basically narrate this live into the morning show as it was unfolding and it was the first time i'd ever covered something like that so it's just really interesting really memorable and i just for the rest of the day i could just feel that energy We want to go back to CTV Sheila Scott for the latest on the rescue of a snowboarder. He has been lost since yesterday afternoon, being reunited with family right now here at Mount Seymour. They said they were just so stressed out, so an emotional moment here. This 26-year-old man from Washington State hugging family members here at Mount Seymour. They were just panicked. I'm seeing uh, tears from his aunt over there. It's just an unbelievable moment of relief for this family. So this
0: man is being brought out to safety, the helicopter is buzzing, mom's crying, and you're trying to
1: convey this live on morning television. Yeah, and one of the weirdest things was it's kind of far away, so when they started to lower him down, I wasn't totally sure if it was him, but as they started to come closer to us, I sort of saw his face and he gave a thumbs up and that was the moment I knew exactly what I was seeing and that it was him. So it's a lot of things to take in all at once while trying to remain calm and you're you're feeling the energy, not just from the family, but from the rescuers and from him as he rushed to his family to give them you know, a big hug after being lost in an ice like all night. Thank you Sheila. I'm now pulling up
0: my chair to the desk of anchor Mi Jung Lee, who spent many years reporting in the field.
2: What was your biggest adrenaline rush? Okay, there was um, a convicted pimp named Reza Moazami. And we knew he was in court trying to get bail. He had been charged trying to get bail. It was December. It was a cold winter night. I wasn't even working that day. But the news director said, "Uh, I think you better go and see if he gets bail. So it was my day off. I went down there. The cameraman and I, we stood outside um, the courthouse on Main Street. Um, we he, had, he got bail. So we knew he was coming out. We didn't know exactly when. But uh, we knew which door he'd be coming out. So we waited and waited at that door. And he came out. And then he, as soon as he saw me, he tried to run. His mom was parked in a car waiting to pick him up and take him home. We knew this might be the only chance we ever get pictures of him. Um, so I just started peppering him with questions. Has asked some serious allegations against you. What do you how do you respond to the allegations? No, talk to me. Is it true that you lured these girls into the sex trade? No, actually it's not. Why isn't it true? So you're saying it's not true? No, it's all He tried to hide his face. He was trying to avoid me. I I said, you know, what do you think of these allegations of um, sexual assault, sexual exploitation, um, that you're a a pimp? And he just tried to run away from me, hide his face. And the adrenaline was definitely pumping. And we just went after him until he got into his mom's car and drove away. But I'll never forget that because those were the only images that any local media got of Reza Moazami. And uh, he went through the court system, was eventually convicted, and we use those images all the time. And uh, it was a powerful, powerful video. And um, I'm glad I stood there on that cold December night and waited for him. (laughs) And this is such a, a rare set of charges
0: against somebody. That was such an exceptional story. And had you not done that, it's really hard to, to talk
2: about somebody on TV when you can't see who it is. Absolutely, because he did get out on bail. But as the police suspected, he broke his bail conditions and was quickly then put back into custody. So there was that only that short window of opportunity to get, you know, to try to get some video of him. And uh, I think that that story was powerful because of that video. And I know that girls who were victims of him, of of Reza Moazami, They felt seeing his images, seeing the story, it made it real to them. Like they felt, yeah, my concerns, my allegations against him are real. He's a criminal and I'm glad this is making it on the news. And it was powerful for these girls to see him on TV.
0: Thanks for that, Meech. Uh, I'm now with managing editor Ethan Faber. Ethan, what's the story that really got the blood pumping after all your years in the field?
4: Um, I would say it was involving an airplane. I was flying uh, with a bunch of protesters up to Tofino. They were going to be protesting uh, some logging that was being proposed. And there were people coming from all over North America to this uh, rally. And um, I ended up hitching a ride with a World War II pilot in his private... Aircraft, and it was this small little plane, um, kind of like a, a, an old Corvette Stingray, uh, but with wings. And it had two little seats. And so we got in um, and we started flying from Victoria up island to Tofino. And this guy was a great character. He used to land on aircraft carriers in the Battle of the Pacific. He had all these incredible stories. Anyway, as we were coming in to land in Tofino, we're making our descent and aiming at the runway. He calls out, uh-oh, which is not what you want to hear when you're in a small aircraft. And he says, we're going a little too fast. I need to lose... Airspeed quickly, and I'm like, okay, do what you gotta do. And he pulls on the, you know, the joystick or whatever, and suddenly we're not pointing at the runway anymore. The nose of the plane is pointing perpendicular to the runway, like to the left. And so our wing is now aiming down the asphalt, and we're still descending in that direction. We're just not pointing in the right direction. And I thought to myself, unless the wheels on this aircraft are like shopping cart wheels, Uh, it's not going to be good if we touch the ground. And we were getting very close to the ground, like probably below 100 feet. And we're still not pointing up the runway. We're pointing sideways. Obviously, at that moment, you say to yourself, well, I got into reporting because I wanted to have experiences. And I'm having an experience, but I was only about 30. And I thought this is a little too soon to go out. Uh, And at the last second, he yanked on the Joystick thingy again, and suddenly uh the plane spun in the air and we were pointing in the right direction, and bam, we landed. About a year later, I was chatting about that landing with my father-in-law, who happens to be a retired fighter pilot for the Canadian Forces, and I told him that story, and he looked at me and he said, That is a maneuver that is totally not allowed, totally banned, totally dangerous, but it was used frequently. In World War II, by airplanes that had to land on aircraft carriers, usually under fire, and only one chance to stick it. So he said, basically, you experienced uh, a wartime air uh, maneuver, and you're lucky to have survived it. But uh, when I look back at it, I realize I was in good hands. I mean, this guy uh, clearly had nine lives, and and I'm grateful that I made it. And I would say it's definitely the big adrenaline rush uh, that I think about sometimes.
0: Thank you, Ethan. And I guess this is a good time to tell my story. In 2016, my boss, our assignment editor, Scott Bills, called me up and said, how would you like to go in an F-18 Super Hornet for a story? You've, You've got to decide quickly because it's happening soon. Now, I don't know a lot of aircraft, and I thought that this was like some sort of World War II era aircraft like the Snowbirds. And so I said, sure, that sounds great. I always wanted to go on a Snowbirds flight, so I signed up. It turns out it was an hour-long flight in a state-of-the-art fighter jet that uh, Boeing was trying to sell to the Canadian government. So they'd gone to the Abbotsford Air Show where they were doing a whole bunch of... uh demos, a bunch of different shows, and they were offering a handful of reporters to go. And I ended up uh, meeting Boeing pilot and former U.S. Navy fighter pilot John Tunsis-Tugas. He um, took me in a flight simulator first. I thought everything was going to be fine. And then I started getting really nervous when I got into the flight suit. I was told I could not wear any makeup because they were worried that with the oxygen mask on my face that a little slight spark could um, catch the makeup on fire. Uh, apparently men also have to be clean shaven when they go on a flight like this uh, for uh, those reasons they're worried that uh, something could happen. So that's just a you know a great tone to set when you're getting in this uh, multi-million dollar uh, aircraft. So I got suited up in uh, an anti-G suit uh, got strapped in, they show you the parachute, they discuss what's going to happen if the aircraft goes down, if something is wrong, there's an emergency beacon, I'd be tethered to the pilot, I'd never be by myself. So this is really setting the tone, everything's going to be great. But what was most nerve wracking for me is I suffer from migraines. And I was really worried that the change in air pressure and altitude could trigger a migraine and that I would um, vomit in my oxygen mask, which in other aircraft, uh, I, I ended up going in a snowbird flight a couple years later, and um, they don't take you high enough that you need the oxygen mask in those flights, but for the super hornet, you do. And so the whole time, I was anxiously thinking, oh, God, please don't let me get a migraine. Please don't let me vomit in my oxygen mask, and then they'll have to cut short the flight. Well, it turns out uh, Toonsis has taken a lot of these, what they call VIP flights, and he's a really smart guy. And, uh, you know, as we were doing an afterburner takeoff in Abbotsford, um, he was asking me to point out local landmarks and uh, talk to to him about where I grew up and just uh, really made me feel at ease. So before I knew it, we were screaming towards downtown Vancouver in a fighter jet. Um, And then... It was just the most magical experience. The adrenaline that I'd been feeling at the takeoff um, you know, really died down uh, until we went back uh, around. We did a loop of downtown Vancouver, went back to Abbotsford, and then did some aerobatics around Mount Baker. We're talking uh, sideways turns, flips, uh, all sorts of things. And, of course, being that the whole point of this flight was that we were supposed to um, see how state-of-the-art the aircraft is and that it needed minimal training, I had to turn out the controls. So I did a barrel roll on this aircraft. There's video evidence that this happened. And, um you know, he offered, uh, Toons has offered that I could do a lot more things at the controls, but I was way too nervous. So, um, you know, he just finished, you know, showing off all these amazing pirouettes and, and beautiful things. And then the flight was nearing a close. The hour was almost over. And he said... Um, you know, here's your chance. We discussed this, and he said, Do you want to try a maneuver where we pull seven G's in a turn, a really tight turn going down towards the earth, hurtling towards the earth? Um, most of the flight was about uh, three and a half G's, was the maximum, which was already quite a bit of pressure. And uh, so I decided, Yeah, let's go for it. And barely had the word yes escaped my lips, then all of a sudden, down we go, and they train you when you do these other turns. You have to clench your your leg muscles and your ab muscles to force the blood from your feet uh, back up to your brain so that you don't pass out, and seven Gs is a lot of force. Uh, we're talking that uh, when uh, space shuttles are reentering orbit, uh, that's the type of G-forces that they're dealing with. And I tell you, the adrenaline was coursing through my body as I was trying not to black out. The edges of my vision were going dark. Uh, but I stayed conscious and I managed to climb out of the aircraft at the end, uh, wobbly legged, uh, but the barf bag was not used. And I caught some pretty significant bragging rights uh, after that. I think there's a certain cameraman in the newsroom who calls me Penny Danger after that experience. Um, let me bring in reporter Scott hers now. Uh, Scott, you had a pretty fun story up in the air, uh, then on the air while you were living and working in California.
5: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I set up several days of stories called Extreme Santa Barbara to see what people were doing. That was fun and extreme. Uh, I have a bit of an adrenaline junkie spirit myself. So I thought it would be fun, and my goal was to see what people were doing around Santa Barbara. That was unique and fun, and so I found out about these guys that uh, did some paragliding off this hill just outside Santa Barbara. So I went over and, and started talking to them and said, I pitched them on this story, and they said, sure, that sounds great bit of a miscommunication. And it's awesome about this job is that you never know what you're going to do on a daily basis. And so I had set it up thinking I was going to feature these guys learning uh, how to uh, paraglide and teach people how to paraglide. Turns out when I get there, the instructor says, all right, we're going to teach you how to do it. And you're going to fly by the afternoon. And knowing me and my adventurous and kinda outgoing spirit, I was like, bring it on, let's do this. This is not what I was expecting, but uh, by the afternoon, I was flying two, three hundred feet in the air all by myself, and the instructor was talking to me from the ground, and sure enough, the story became about me learning how to paraglide.
0: And what was it like, though, trying to report as you've got this crazy adrenaline rush going on?
5: Yeah, it was fascinating. When I was up in the air, um, it was actually very calm and peaceful. The adrenaline wasn't pumping when I was two, three 300, 400 feet in the air. It's when I got on the ground and I successfully landed, um, my friend who was the camera operator uh, looks at me. As he's rolling and says, how was it? And that's when I kind of had to think, okay, now I'm, now the adrenaline's pumping. I've landed safely, and now I have to explain to him what it was like up there. Uh, so actually wasn't when I was at the highest point. Uh, is when, I, As soon as I landed and I was safe on the ground is when I realized what I had actually just done after only two, three hours of training. And then I had to say to him, um, on camera as well, not just him, but he's rolling, it was fascinating and, and frightening and, and invigorating and got the adrenaline pumping for sure. Thank you, Scott. Now to another Scott, videographer
0: Scott Connerton. You had a pretty intimidating experience in an aircraft.
5: It was a,
6: a shoot where six or seven snowmobilers were caught in an avalanche in Fernie. And we had to travel, you know, for breaking news. And the satellite truck rolled all the way from Vancouver all the way to Fernie. Uh, non-stop driving, and then I flew with another uh, reporter, Stephen Smart, at the time. And that's when, you know, the rescue was happening. And I remember going up in a helicopter, getting some aerials, because um, we had to pull the feed with all the uh, stations that were there. Taking the doors off this little helicopter, and we were climbing to get some aerial vis of where this happened and yeah you could see the snowmobiles that were in the uh, debris and everything that were just trapped in there you know get the seat belt on and hang your feet out the edge and it, you know it's winter it's it's freezing well i'm not sure what the temperature was but it could be minus 20 minus 30 up there right i put on my gloves and bundled up or whatever and like everybody nominated me to go up so I was like okay and then uh yeah we had this little put- putt helicopter that made it up there and it was quite a ride that's for sure
0: thank you scott um switching gears now to another videographer sean foss uh you were the man on the ground during one of vancouver's riots
6: um it was in uh,
7: 2003 and i was um called out to something that happened at uh, gm place it was uh Guns N' Roses was supposed to be playing that night. Uh, They cancelled their show, and so everybody was starting to get very restless. And by the time I showed up, within minutes, everything was already kind of quite crazy. I guess what was most memorable was not necessarily about what was happening there, but the amount of different things that uh, translated into different news stories that, that came out of that was most interesting to me. And like when I first showed up, in the distance, I could see... The cops beating up this guy with a with a billy club. It turned out that he was a father going to pick his daughter up, who had called and said, "Dad, this is, this, the concert's crazy, everything's crazy. Come pick me up." He went and picked her up and ended up getting beat up by the cops. And so that ended up being a re- quite a large news story. And then I could hear, you know, the windows glass smashing up top. And so I squeezed my way up to the to the upper levels of which is now Rogers Arena, and they're taking the big metal um, barricades and they're smashing them through the windows, so that was a big deal because they were getting entrant, uh, access to the inside of the building and Then the next thing that happened, I was kind of shooting some other stuff over this way, and I kind of feel this this somebody kind of come burst in past me, and it was a cop that was coming by, and he had his billy club in his hands, kind of like a cross check of a hockey stick and right into this guy that was standing in front of me and knocked the guy's teeth out. That ended up being a news story because that guy also was trying to get out of there and in all the mayhem. And I guess the, the craziest part of the night was we were down by the box office and people had smashed the concrete garbage cans and they were hurling. And so I was kind of holed up in there with another camera. I think it was Steve Lyon from Global TV and a couple of cops. And we were sort of hiding behind the pillars at the box office and the monstrous chunks like I mean the size of a volleyball in some cases were, were being hurled at us and and I that, that was kind of at that point I was sort of worried that something something might happen but there was all kinds of stuff I mean there was all kinds of craziness people were shooting off Roman candles at us it sort of reminded me of the Stanley Cup riots it wasn't as large of a scale but the amount of news stories that came out of that particular event was quite uh, astonishing
0: but also in terms of getting the adrenaline going for a cameraman, I mean, you guys, if, if nobody's seen an ENG camera, your field of vision is you've got great vision through the lens, but you've got one whole side of your body that you can't really see anything. You have no peripheral vision at all because you're staring down a, a viewfinder. So that must be, it, it must not take very much to get the adrenaline pumping, let alone you go into a situation like this where you have no peripheral vision. It's absolute mayhem. That must have been terrifying.
7: Yeah, it was pretty freaky for sure. Yeah, and you don't know, it's way before like the police even sort of knew what was happening because it was the it was announced that the show was canceled and then people immediately went off. So I don't think that there was people I don't think that the, that anybody was prepared for it and so yeah to be called into this that the concert's been cancelled you need to go there and see what's happening and it was already mayhem yeah it gets the blood pumping but you just kind of go oh you know just hope people are nice to camera guys and you go in and just try and get in, and shoot it the best you can and and uh, as safely as you can yeah but that was definitely a rush yeah
0: Thanks, Sean. Uh, Finally now, videographer Gary Barnt. And you got some of the most memorable video on June 15th, 2011. Uh, A dark day in Vancouver's history and uh, a a real rush for you as a cameraman.
8: I was on Chopper 9 duty for the final few games of the Stanley Cup playoffs when Vancouver was uh, playing Boston. And I remember flying early in that day for the noon show and just seeing... The amount of people that are already downtown uh, near the Queen Elizabeth Theatre and the post office. And basically, you know, the authorities saying that the downtown core has been basically shut down. It's already shut down. It's noon. The game, I don't think, was until about 4 o'clock east, you know, 4 o'clock Pacific or something like that. And it was already shut down. So we went back up for the 5 o'clock show. And it was just still a sea of people. We didn't see any disturbances, so we went and landed in the harbour. Uh, refuel the aircraft. We watched a little bit of the game there. We took off and the game started getting out of hand where the Canucks were behind and you could tell they weren't going to catch up. So at that point started doing our orbits and I started noticing people throwing things at the giant screen that had been set up and they were breaking panels. That was the first indication there was going to be trouble and then the next thing you know we finished an orbit and just as we're coming around my pilot noticed smoke by the Queenie. We made a quick beeline and noticed a car on fire, people surrounding the car. And at that point, I could hear uh, Jim in my ear saying, you're
7: up, you're hot, you're hot. Uh, As we look at these live shots from CTV's Chopper 9 as uh, police try to get control of what's left of this unruly, violent crowd, uh, just quickly recapping what's happened here in the last four hours or so. Uh, The hockey game ended, and it wasn't long after that that uh, things started to get out of control.
8: And it was just me. They were just... We were live, and then it was Rob Brown on the ground with his, his live capability, and it was just live. And I just I was live the whole time, and uh, you know, ten minutes in, I could uh, I was told, uh, be mindful you're always on live because now CNN has just picked up your feed and CNN is beaming it everywhere. So now it's like, you know, millions of people are watching this because CNN is just taking the live feed right there on their on their channel and just watching it and then just having it, you know, get bigger and bigger and then following the crowds and, oh, here come the police and now they're burning police cars and now they're burning uh, those cars right beside the Hudson's Bay and, you know, shooting that and then all of a sudden we got to head over to the London drugs because we're hearing reports that they're trying to bring in the London drugs and getting there just as they're basically pouring into the London drugs just take, taking the chain link fence down and just pouring in there like like ants into a hive people just running in there and looting and the whole time you're live and it's, it's dark at that point. The helicopter is, is doing 360s around in tight orbit so we can shoot between the buildings. And my constant, you know, you're just concentrating like crazy to get everything you can and there's just stuff happening everywhere and I remember, I think that's the longest flight I ever did in one uh, continuation was we almost flew for three hours uh, before we had to land and I think the most poignant thing for the whole thing for me was as we were coming around um, Point Grey and UBC and the sun was just setting or had just set and the shot that they took and it's probably the shot that everybody will remember is a beautiful shot of downtown vancouver with the trees in the foreground and plumes of smoke coming up from various parts of downtown looking like it had just been shelled in in a war movie or something and i think that's the one image that will always stick with me on that and that was certainly adrenaline pumping
0: and on that note, I want to thank Gary, Sean, both the Scots, Ethan, Mijung, Sheila, and Nafisa for sharing the stories that gave them an adrenaline rush in the field. I also want to thank Adam Lee for his support with Archival Audio this week. And thank you for joining us on BTS with CTV. Is there a topic you'd like us to cover on a future podcast? Email me, bts at ctv.ca. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe for more insights, tidbits, and the stories behind the stories. I'm Penny Daphlos.